Let us turn in God's word this morning to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. We read this in connection with the fifth commandment, honoring father and mother. Let us read the first 34 verses of this psalm. Titled a Maskil. It's a teaching psalm, a psalm of instruction of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto God? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm. Strength is that strong is thy hand, and high is thy right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. When thou spakest in vision to thy Holy One, and saidst, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, I have exalted one chosen out of the people, I have found David my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. He 
he shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes, and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Thus far we read the holy and inspired word of God. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy word. It's on the basis of what we have read in Psalm 89 and many other passages of Scripture besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 39. Question 104. What doth God require in the fifth commandment? The answer, that I show all honor, love, and fidelity to my father and mother and all in authority over me, and submit myself to their good instruction and correction with due obedience, and also patiently bear with their weaknesses and infirmities, since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fifth commandment, which we consider this morning, is a transitionary commandment. It takes us from the first table of the law and brings us unto the second table of the law first table of the law consisting of commandments one through four teaches us how we are to live in relation to Jehovah God. The second table of the law commandments five through ten teaches us how we are to live in relation to the neighbor that God places in our pathway. This fifth commandment bridges the gap between the first table of the law, how we are to relate to Jehovah, and the second table of the law, how we are to relate to the neighbor. It teaches us about both, honor father and mother. As we'll see in the sermon, we must honor father and mother because God has put them in place. Honoring those in authority begins with honoring God. 
And then this commandment brings us into then the second table of the law. How do I relate to the neighbor? How do I interact with father and mother? How do I interact with the employer in the workplace? With the civil magistrate, the government? What's my attitude, my view towards the government? And then in the church, what's my attitude and view of the elders through whom God rules? Honoring authority. First, perfect authority, looking at what authority is in God. Second, imperfect authority as God rules through the hand of fathers and mothers. And then third, gracious authority. Perfect, imperfect, gracious authority. What is authority? There is a prevalent, albeit wrong, view of authority that is found especially in Western society. This view of authority is incorrect. And this incorrect view of authority is a threat unto the families of the church of Christ. You see, the family is the basis, the most fundamental place in which God places us in relation to others. It's in the family and through the family that we learn how to interact with others. It's in the family that we are taught how to honor those in authority, and children will either learn or not learn to be respectful to those in authority. And yet there is this view of authority that is commonly found in Western culture that is attacking the family. And if this view will take root in families, even in Christian families, it will undermine the ability of the parents to teach their children to respect those in authority. It will spill over into the church, where then the members of the church do not know how to honor elders. It will spill over into the workplace and the relationship between employees and employers. And then it will spill generally into society at large until at last there is an entire nation of people that does not honor those in authority. Perhaps some of you have imbibed this view of authority, perhaps not intentionally, but through the influence of culture, have started to adopt this view of authority as your own. So what is then this wrong view of authority? Stated simply, it's this. That authority is superiority. Authority is superiority. 
Authority means that in some sense I am superior to others. It could be that one has superior power, even physical power. And so because one has superior physical power than another individual, that individual can impose his will upon that individual And because he can impose his will upon that individual, now that individual who has superior power is in authority over that individual. Or perhaps the superiority is not physical power, but perhaps the superiority is in knowledge, in wisdom, and in understanding. And so then the line of reasoning would be that because this individual is superior to me in wisdom and understanding, therefore that individual has authority over me. This whole, this whole notion that, that authority is superiority is the basis for Western democracy. It's how our political system is set up. We acknowledge as citizens of the United States that the government has superior might and superior power over us. And so we willingly then, as citizens of the nation, place ourselves under them so long as they have superior power and might. And as long as they provide some benefits with that superior power unto the citizens of that land, then the people will willingly submit unto them. And so if one follows this line of reasoning that authority is superiority, then that means that you may choose who is going to be an authority over you and who is not going to be an authority over you. You can be selective. If somebody does have superior might or wisdom, then you will submit to that individual. But then if in your judgment this individual lacks superior strength or superior wisdom, then one can withdraw from submitting unto them. You see how serious of a threat this wrong view of authority is. There's a threat that's presented in the first place to those who are in authority. If that's the basis of authority, that I am superior to those who are underneath me, can you see what dangers that presents to those then who are in authority? How proud the one in authority would become. I have something that you don't have, would be the mindset. And if not pride characterizing those in authority, then insecurity. What if I am in a position of authority, but I'm insecure about my ability? 
then what we oftentimes see is they try to compensate for their lack of superiority. They feel that their authority is threatened and feeling that their authority is threatened, then they try to compensate by abuse of power. So what happens when there's this wrong view of authority? And then consider it from the other perspective. Consider how serious this threat is to those who are to be the subjects under the authority of others. If authority consists of superiority, then those who are underneath the authority of others will constantly be evaluating, is this person superior to me? Does this person have superior strength over me? Does this person have superior wisdom, knowledge over me? Does this person have greater influence or control than me? And if so, well, then I will acquiesce to this individual, but wait until that day when I get as much power as this individual. Wait until this individual is no longer superior to me, and then I'm going to be out from underneath of the authority of that individual. Children very quickly learn this. And so what do they do? They test whether or not mom and dad are going to stand by what they said. Mom said, don't touch it. And the child tests. Is mom going to stand by what she said? What if I reach out and grab this? You see the seriousness of that view of authority? How could there be headship in the home if authority meant superiority? Does that mean then that the husband is superior to the wife? No. If that were the case, what if there is a wife who had more gifts, more intellectual gifts than her husband? She could out-argue her husband, and she would never follow the headship of her husband because she believes that authority is superiority. That is not the teaching of the Bible. What about children? Children wouldn't respect mom and dad as long as mom and dad have greater strength. But then as soon as the children become physically strong enough that they can overcome mom or dad, then the children no longer have to honor father and mother. The Bible teaches us about authority It's quite different than what Western culture teaches about authority. The biblical view of authority is this, that authority is spiritual. When we say that authority is spiritual, what we mean is this, is that authority comes from God who is spirit. God is the source of all power 
that is found on this earth. The power, the authority that God has is not a derivative authority. God does not receive this authority from anyone else. But Jehovah God is power. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. God is the one who holds power in his right arm. God is the one who has a scepter in his hand and who rules over all of the nations of the earth. The authority that God has is perfect authority. And when we say that his authority is perfect, we can speak of this in several different senses even. One sense in which Jehovah's authority is a perfect authority is in this regard, that his authority is absolute. He is authority, and there is no other authority, no other ultimate authority besides him. It's not as if Jehovah God has some authority and the devil has some authority, and daily then Jehovah God must be warring against the devil trying to retain authority for himself, lest the devil get the upper hand in this battle. No, God is absolute power and authority. Every creature then must answer to the authority, the absolute authority of Jehovah God. Rational creatures are under his rule, humans and angels will have to stand before God in the judgment day and answer to his authority. But as well, the inanimate objects of this earth are under his authority. The raging of the sea obeys him. At times, man thinks that he is in control. Man goes to the deep places of the earth exploring those places. But then God, with the weight of the ocean, crushes and reminds all of the earth that He is God. His authority is perfect also in this sense when considered from a moral perspective. His power, his might, is upright. His authority is always just and fair. The psalmist declares in the 14th verse, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. God is the perfect one of authority, never responds in sins to the murmurings and complaints 
of his people. Moses was patient for many, many years as the leader of God's people in the wilderness. But at last, even he responded in sin and struck the rock in anger. But God, for the thousands of years of the history of mankind upon this earth, has never once abused His authority. He chastises His children, but He does not provoke His children to wrath. He uses the rod of correction but he does not abuse that rod of correction. And so the calling then that we have as we stand before this perfect authority of God is to submit, to honor him as God. But I show all honor, love, and fidelity to my father and my mother and all in authority over me. Who are we to test the authority of God? Who are we to rebel against his way for us? God's authority is a perfect authority But the authority of human beings upon this earth, we confess, is an imperfect authority. The Catechism speaks of this in the end of answer 104. And also patiently bear with their, mothers and fathers, weaknesses and infirmities. Every parent, every Christian parent recognizes, acknowledges, and confesses these weaknesses. The parent understands that God has called him or her to that special position to have authority over that child. The parent understands that this authority is a derived authority. It's an authority, measure of power, that is spiritual, which is conferred by God himself to the parent. But then as well, the parent recognizes that as I stand there with authority over the child, I do so as a sinner. I have weaknesses and infirmities. There are physical weaknesses against which the parent must struggle The body grows tired. We find it exhausting to carry out the work that is before us. And then as well, there are mental weaknesses and infirmities. Parents are forgetful. and do not always carry through on the word that they gave to their children. And then there are spiritual weaknesses and infirmities. Parents are impatient. Parents become frustrated and even irritated by the sins of their children. 
The Bible is filled with examples of figures, biblical figures who struggled with sins even as persons of authority. Think of Jacob, who is the father of the twelve sons, but who committed the sin of favoritism. He delighted in Joseph over the rest of the children that he had. Think of Eli, the priest, who was lazy in fulfilling the work of discipline among his two sons. Think of David, who was the king over Israel, who had an inordinate affection for Absalom and was inconsolable after Absalom's death. And so because we, are, we as parents are sinful, then we must receive instruction from God in His Word how, about how we are to conduct ourselves as parents. And the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us about how we as imperfect parents are to go about this work. The Catechism says that children are to submit themselves to the good instruction and correction that's given by the parents. Good instruction and correction. And this teaches us as parents what we are to do as we stand in relationship to our children. Two things that the Catechism speaks of. Teach them, give them good instruction and correction. The order is noteworthy before The Heidelberg Catechism calls us to give correction, necessary correction, unto our children. We are to be teachers. Proverbs 23, verse 12. Apply thine heart unto instruction and thine ears to the words of knowledge. We are to teach the child the fear of Jehovah God. Even as we heard last week, Sunday, in Deuteronomy, we are to teach the child while we are in the house. When we walk by the way, when we sit down and when we rise up in every opportunity that God gives us, we are to be instructing the generation that follows us. But then as well, we who are parents are called to correct our children. It is a necessary place of discipline. Even though we as parents are sinners and must struggle against our own weaknesses and infirmities, yet we are required by God Himself to correct the children whom God has placed in the home. God corrects His children. Psalm 89, verses 31 and following. If they break my statutes and keep not my judgment, my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity 
with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Now, there can be obstacles that would prevent a child, a parent, from using the rod with the child. There's the obstacle of laziness. It takes hard work to use the rod in the proper way with the child. It's easier simply to try to ignore the disobedience of the child. As well, there can be this obstacle, the obstacle of being soft-hearted, being tender-hearted. Now that is, can be a strength, but it also can be an obstacle that prevents the parent from using the rod of correction with the child. The Word of God requires of parents the use of the rod. It is not up to the parent to decide and evaluate whether or not they will or will not use the rod. But the Word of God requires it. Proverbs 23, verse 14. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. But the parent is called, required to use the rod of correction does not mean that the parent has the license to vent his or her frustrations with the child through the use of the rod. We must use the rod in the proper way and always, always, the rod must be used with law. The motivation for spanking the child may not be that the parent is angry with that child, upset at what that child has done, and now that parent is going to show unto that child how angry that parent is for what the child did. The motivation for using the rod must not be that the parent has been embarrassed by the public disobedience of the child. And now the parent, overcome with a sense of shame at the public sin of the child, deals with that sin by humiliating the child with the rod. That is not how parents are to use the rod. But the rod is used in love. Love governs the manner in which the parent interacts with the child throughout the process of using the rod. 
Love means that the parent is in control of his or her emotions, not beating the child out of frustration. Disciplining, using the rod in love means that there must be instruction given to the child. Remember, the Catechism says, with good instruction and correction. And we must never forget that we are to instruct the child, help the child understand how his actions were disobedience unto mom and dad. And because God Himself speaks through the commandments of mother and father, then for the child to disobey mom and dad is for the child to disobey God in heaven. And then disappointing in love means as well as the child is brought to see his sin and acknowledge and confess his sorrow over sin, that then the child is instructed about Jesus Christ. The sin is covered with the blood of the Lamb of the Son of God. Go and sin no more. We need reminders as parents that even though we have so many sins and weaknesses which would prevent us from faithfully carrying out the work of parenting, yet it is God Himself who has placed us as authority figures in the home. Let us never forget that God is pleased to govern His children by the hands of earthly fathers and earthly mothers. The Catechism uses that language at the end of answer 104. Bear patiently with their weaknesses and infirmity since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. What a thought that of all of the ways that God in His wisdom could have chosen to govern the children of the church, He chose parents. He chose you, a young married woman, and gave unto you a child, and now set you in that special office of mother. He chose you, the young married man, and has given unto you a child, and thus has set you in the special office of father. The importance of this position that God gives to imperfect parents cannot be overstated. For it is through the parents that this child 
will come to know Jehovah God. In many ways, the view that this child has of God will be shaped by the influence of father and mother. In some homes where there is a slack hand, where there is a lack of discipline, where the child is coddled and spoiled, then children will grow up and that will be their view of God, that God is a permissive God, that God permits us to do whatever we want, and that there are no consequences for what we do, because that's how mom and dad raised me. And in other homes where the parents' hands are harsh and tyrannical and there is no grace revealed, then children will grow up and form that conception of God in heaven. God is a distant, aloof, stern God who's ready at a moment's notice to destroy. Why? Because that's how mom and dad raised me. Let us never forget that God is pleased to govern his children by the hands of fathers and mothers. And then as well, those who are under authority must never forget the same reality. God rules me by the hands of those who are in authority over me. And the reason that they are in authority over me, whether it be mother and father, whether it be the elder in the church, whether it be the president of the United States, the reason they are in authority over me is because God placed them over me. And so we do not test or contest the authority of those whom God has placed over us. But instead, we bear patiently with them in their weaknesses and in their infirmities. It is very important that we bear patiently with them in their weaknesses and infirmities. You see, some will claim, well, I love God. I love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I not only love God, but I also submit to God. I honor the authority of God in my life. But then that same individual will turn around and not respect father and mother, and not respect 
the civil government and not respect the elders in the church. The reason they give, they're not trustworthy. They're not superior to me in wisdom, in understanding, in power. I have a greater understanding than them, so I don't need to submit to those. And that goes back to the same point that we made earlier. Authority is not superiority. But authority is spiritual power received from God Himself. Do you love God? Will you honor God's authority in your life? The way that you show that is by honoring those through whom God is pleased to govern you. Show your love and submission to Jehovah by submitting to your father and mother, your elders, and the civil magistrate. Thanks be to God that his rule and his authority over us is a gracious authority. If it was not a gracious authority, every one of us would stand condemned before him. The psalmist in Psalm 89 speaks of the grace of God by speaking of salvation. Verse 26, He, David, shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. David understood that he needed salvation from this God. The same God who had set David up on high the same God who had established the throne of David, the same God who had given David victory over his enemies was that God who gave unto David salvation. And David, as he cried out unto his God, his Father, and the rock of his salvation, understood that he needed salvation from this God. He knew that he had violated the commandments of God. Psalm 51, verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David knew that he had personal sins, that he as an individual had committed against Jehovah God. But worse yet, David knew that he had committed sins as king as a public servant who was anointed by God to rule over the nation of Israel, and he had sinned as king over Israel. He sinned as he lusted and then broke the seventh commandment and then attempted to cover it up with murder. He knew that he had failed to be a faithful governor over Old Testament Israel. 
God in his grace delivered David. He did so through the son that would be born from the royal line of David. God gave unto David the sacrifice so that instead of David being condemned, God's only begotten son was condemned. Even as David cried unto the rock of his salvation, so must we as parents cry out unto Jehovah God. We cry unto him because we need his wisdom. Wisdom to guide us in our responses to the sins of our children. Always children will sin against parents. Wives sin against the headship of husbands. Church members sin against the headship of elders and employees. Sin against the headship of the employer. But may the knowledge of God's grace shape the response that we have towards those who sin against us. May we be given to remember how God has dealt with us in his loving kindness and in his tender mercies. Yes, God uses the rod of correction in our lives. Yes, God sends us through a narrow and a difficult way so that we are humbled and reminded again of our own frailty and dependence upon the rock of salvation. But always, God deals with us in grace. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. May the knowledge of God's grace be a reason for us daily to seek him, to cry out unto him, and to worship him as our Savior. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Thou art the God who keeps thy covenant from one generation to the next. Wilt thou grant us humility that we might submit to thy authority in our lives and to those of us whom thou hast called to serve as rulers over others, children, and members of the church. Thou, Father, give to us humility of heart and faith in Jesus Christ that we might steadfastly fulfill the callings that Thou hast given to us. Wilt Thou bless us with Thy Spirit and receive our worship for Jesus' sake. Amen.